hello. My name's Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Tim Burton, every teenager's favorite director. We talked about this last week. He's probably the first director who I knew. Because his style is so evident and in your face, and it's weird. That's right. Very distinctive. Uh, I mean, I remember when Joel Schumacher directed Batman Forever. That was probably the first clear indication to me as a, as a small child of the fact that a director was, was somebody who exists and has some influence over the material. You weren't like, I love this campy, multicolored Batman more than I like that dark, gritty, expressionist one. Oh, I liked all Batmans. <laughs> yeah, it didn't matter what it yeah. was. <laughs> um, and yeah, Tim Burton, probably the first director that I would have identified as my favorite director. Mm-hmm. I mean, a murderer's row of movies early on. Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Batman, Batman Returns, Edward Scissorhands, Ed Wood. Ed Wood I probably got to later. And was your love of Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi, did that come out of the Tim Burton Ed Wood, or was that found earlier than that? That was found earlier. Oh, I didn't okay. see the, the Ed Wood movie till later. So... Going back, what was the first Tim Burton movie you saw? Batman, right? Probably Batman, yes. And then Batman Returns, which was one of those movies that was the first movie to really scare me. Mm -hmm. Um, So obviously Tim Burton has very deep roots in me, and he's still a director who has some of those early movies that I really, really like. For me, Tim Burton, my life was dominated by a film he didn't direct, Nightmare Before Christmas, which I saw in theaters, and I remember so vividly terrifying me. I had to keep my ears covered the entire time time and my eyes on the ground and like most things that scares kids you become obsessed with it as yeah. you're you know you grow older and it's something that I revisited over and over again and it's so Tim Burton-y that like most people assumed because his name is above the title that he directed it and he didn't it was Henry Selleck mm-hmm. but his visual style is so specific that it's just oh yeah this is Burton and I think that Tim Burton obviously has his fans still Many of them teenagers, mm-hmm. uh, many of them who shop at Hot Topic. That's uh, right. Hate to be painting in such broad strokes. Well, that's where you find all the Tim Burton merchandise. And I think also maybe some French auteurists still like him, uh, because as we learned this week, Positif ranked Alice in Wonderland as one of their top 10 movies of the year. Ah, uh, Positif. Tim Burton is symbolic to me and to a lot of people as somebody who lost it. Yes. And one of the most go-to examples as directors that just something happened and they just didn't have that magic anymore. And you watch the later ones as they come out and you say, was he ever good? You know, that but then you go and watch his earlier films like Pee Wee's Big Adventure that we both watched. And you're like, oh, yeah, no. Yeah, he was great. So, I mean, I have some theories about what happened, but. I'm sure that'll come out as we go along. Maybe I'll start by defining the Tim Burton aesthetic, (laughs) which is a mix of like Edwardian Gothic, as it would appear in a Roger Corman movie. So probably not that authentic mixed with Los Angeles kitsch, 20th century Americana, tacky shit like hairdos and, you know, John Waters suburbia and whatever you might find at an antique shop. And I will say that this aesthetic is interesting and original. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I can't think of another filmmaker who quite has this aesthetic. Not even Guillermo del Toro. Or well, as like the critics used to say when he first started making movies, he takes kind of disposable pop culture and makes a form of art 
with them, something that is aesthetically pleasing in the way that it doesn't look like your everyday, but it's still recognizable as the everyday. Yeah, I mean, the fact that this like Edwardian Gothic and this 20th century Americana aesthetic coexist, mm. I, I can't think of another director. Edward Gorey-ish um, art yeah, style. Like more Margaret Keene, in mm. fact. I can't think of another filmmaker who's quite done it. And let's go back to his first feature-length film, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which we both watched this week. A film that like I said last week, I did not grow up with. I didn't watch Pee-wee um, when I was a kid. I came to Pee-wee's Big Adventure years later, which is really weird because I thought that I would have seen the film as like a teenager growing up once I got access to movies. But maybe I had already passed my Tim Burton phase by that point. So it's not something I went back to. Or because I didn't have an association with it, I thought like, oh, you know, that's earlier. I don't need to see it. Yeah. Because this film is great. I think it is a total delight. And it's interesting because it is a true marriage of sensibilities between Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, and Tim Burton. It's hard to imagine two sensibilities that go together quite as well as they do in this. It's super funny. I think it may actually be my favorite Tim Burton movie. Wow. Yeah. And it has Paul Rubens in the center as Pee Wee, who, if people don't know, it was a character that he made uh, through sketch and then slowly evolved through this movie and then his TV show into something more for kids. I would be shocked if they didn't know who Pee Wee was. Really? Well, you never know. Uh, Like the fact that he did the HBO show where he got a little dirty. (laughs) Right. Now, I'm sure you all remember the plot of Pee Wee's Big Adventure. Uh, Pee Wee is, of course, the first of many quirky outsiders who recur in the Burton filmography. You know, this is the central idea, I guess, of Tim Burton's movies. This weird outsider guy. Who's white who's white and is usually upper middle class or rich. <laughs> what is Pee-wee's job? <laughs> uh, I probably on some disability pension, I don't know, for being too weird. Or maybe he's a maybe he's a trust fund kid. Yeah, I feel like he is. Unlike most of the later Tim Burton outsiders, he's totally comfortable in his own skin. Mm-hmm. I think maybe Ed Wood is the only other one who's completely comfortable in his own skin. Yeah, you may even say oblivious if you were being mean. And he's liked pretty much by everyone around him. Even though he's a huge jerk. Uh, he <laughs> And ha- I say this in the most loving way. He has this kooky house with a breakfast-making machine, and uh, he has a sprinkler that disrupts the whole neighborhood, but the neighborhood is fine with it. But what he's really got is a bike. Yeah. You know, it's about the capitalist system and this commercial thing that he owns that is better than everybody else's bike. It's true. He is defined by his possessions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then what happens if the mean neighbor kid, Francis, who is also (laughs) a grown man who looks like a child, takes the bike away from him? His whole world collapses. How does he define himself if he doesn't have this bike? I mean, he's not defining himself by the giant wacky house that he makes. One of the things I like about this movie is in the early scenes, it has this world that it lives in. You're kind of dropped in media res here and like there's Amazing Larry and there's the magic shop owner and there are all these like friendly neighborhood people who just you assume have lives outside of the frame. This is Tim Burton also working in a kind of Zucker Brothers-ish vein which Mm. he didn't really return to in his other movies like when the magic shop owner is like you want a head? How about a bigger head? And then he's like and then he has a giant one Mm. and Paul Rubens is like "Ah!" that's funny stuff. A fortune teller tells him that his bike is at the Alamo so he goes on a 
wacky cross-country journey. We don't really know where Pee Wee lives originally. <laughs> I'm assuming probably Los Angeles. Yeah, uh, probably something like that. Uh, but he goes on a cross-country journey to the Alamo and beyond. And he meets an escaped prisoner, uh, a waitress who dreams of going to Paris. He ends up on a movie set. Uh, he, he also rides up, a bull. <laughs> he ends up on the set of a Godzilla movie. He does. Very important. And you know, these early Tim Burton movies, early in his career, Burton had a reputation as somebody who was not a very good or disciplined storyteller Mm -hmm. somebody who prioritized the visual above all else and i gotta say the more recent tim burton movies i think fit that blockbuster storytelling template much more typically and i think they suck and his early movies take a lot of time to meander and enjoy the weird people and the weird sights and that's great images i think that when he would even say stuff like that like i'm not a very good storyteller what he actually means is, I can't follow the structure everyone expects movies to follow. And that's not bad when there's so much interesting stuff going on within the frame, and all the characters are so much fun. Even Pee Wee Herman, who, as an other, is not someone who's persecuted or anything like that. He's just someone who's selfish and loud and does funny voices. Uh, but later on in Burton's career, when he goes to Alice in Wonderland... You know, imagine if Tim Burton actually did Alice in Wonderland like Lewis Carroll wrote. Oh my God, it that could, would have been amazing. It could have been fun, but no, it's fit into this weird Narnia-ish plot that has a very conventional beginning, middle, end. And but I mean, we're going to talk about this probably multiple times, but can you imagine if Tim Burton in the 90s had even just done that script, how different it would have been? Or like in the 80s. It would have been a lot more stop motion, I assume. And it would have been a lot more tactile yeah. and more fun. And when you do it all with CG, which is the way that he does it it's just this like empty feeling Mm -hmm. i can almost picture like the person at the like uh, special effects visual farm just slowly like clicking and making it look polished and photorealistic boo terrible uh you know the peewee's big adventure has a charmingly handcrafted quality to it i mean uh i mean what kid wasn't scarred by a large marge (laughs) doing the part i mean that's okay when was the last time you were delighted by an image in a tim burton movie (sighs) oh It's been a none long of, time. None of, the, none of the new ones that I saw. Yeah, when was the last time you were surprised by an image in a Tim Burton movie? <sighs> Again. Not since Planet of the Apes, where the twist ending took me by surprise. I guess we were surprised to see the ape's head on the Lincoln Monument. Oh, uh, right? well, I wasn't because Kevin Smith put it in his comic book. You remember that? <laughs> right, I do remember that. <laughs> the big controversy that came uh, about with big that? Big controversy. Well, Tim Burton was like, I've never watched Kevin Smith's uh, films and I don't read his comics. Well, good taste, clearly. <laughs> And so, yeah, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, it's all right there. All the stuff Tim Burton loves in their purest form in a way that's also fun for an audience. You don't feel like he's trying to do something different or just phoning it in. Like, he's given this as all as if it was the last movie he was ever going to make. Godzilla's going to ride in a sleigh with Santa Claus. And uh, Paul Rubens, you know? Yeah, well, great performer. Yeah, just... Uh, How could anybody else make Pee-wee someone that by the end of the movie you're not like, ugh, I hate this guy? Because there's a sweetness to it. Yeah, and he's a kid. That's how kids act. They're kind of jerks. Yeah, and and it's It's so... pure id. It's so committed to the bit. I mean, mean, the fact that he built himself as Pee-wee Herman in the movie... (laughs) as Pee-wee Herman. ...shows the rigor with which he approaches this role. (laughs) I remember when I saw it for the first time, and at the end where they're watching the adaptation of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, and I was like, I wonder what big stars are going to be on screen. And I was like, Josh Brolin's dad? (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, and I think Morgan Fairchild. Also. That's right. Also, Milton Berle is in this movie. Oh, is do, you remember, he? do you remember that? He's the guy who's, who's making the, when Pee Wee sneaks onto the studio a lot, mm. he's the old guy making the joke. Oh, yeah, right. Milton Berle uh, is in a Tim Love that movie. studio lot scene. We've talked about this before. Anytime a character walks onto a studio lot and there's like uh, Romans and people in dinosaur costumes, mm, ah, that's pure joy to me. Now, I would like to try something. I would like to go right ahead to his last movie. Ugh. Miss, okay. Miss yeah. Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. So it's not a completely downward slide. It's like we're jumping between yeah. all of these movies. Because I would maybe like to compare the, okay. the two movies in some way. I hadn't seen this movie. I stopped going to see Tim Burton movies. Mm-hmm. I hadn't seen it either until I watched it this week for this podcast. And I wanted to like it. Yeah. You know, I didn't have high hopes, but, you know, you're always hoping there might be a little life in the old Tim Burton. Nope. It's a uh, desiccated corpse that just lays there, <laughs> screaming to be killed. So this movie is about another quirky outsider. He's a young white man who lives in suburbia, not unlike Tim Burton himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, he works in a box store. Uh, life is not so good for him, I guess, because of that but he's he's different he's weird he's peculiar you might say is he in this movie we don't see any evidence of exactly how peculiar he is but we are to take that at face value and his grandfather used to tell him the magical stories of when he used to be at i can't say the title of the movie uh the home for peculiar children Mm -hmm. miss uh peregrine peregrine Peregrine. yeah Yeah. who cares we'll never talk about it again after this podcast um but anyway he goes over to wherever he goes over uh england i believe he uh lives in a family where they can just decide to go from america to england on a trip because you know money doesn't matter so the film was about this kid finds like a collection of white kids who are the outsiders yeah and this is especially noxious because when asked about it tim burton had the worst response that he could give. Uh, I don't have it in front of me, but he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, you don't tell uh, people who make black exploitation movies that there's no white people in them. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, number one, all those black exploitation movies were made by white people. <laughs> number two, there was tons of white people in those movies. But, you know, there is a black character in Miss Peregrine. Yeah, he's the villain. Children. He's the villain who wants to disrupt this wonderful uh, white paradise. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, also, the kid finds this magical fantasy land, kind of a Hogwarts slash X-Men place. But they're not even doing anything there. Not, well, there are like, what, seven or eight kids. One of them's invisible. One of them has a lot of bees around him. Yeah. And, you know, so boring. Typical shit. The one kid there is like the blandest one. Mm -hmm. What happened to Pee Wee? What happened to Beetlejuice? What happened to the the interesting Tim Burton characters? People that were difficult. Like, that they were weird enough that they had to get out of society because, like, people didn't like them being around. Someone who just, she can float. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. But I also think he's somebody who probably never got over getting bullied in high school. Mm -hmm. Um, And, like, any part where there's, I mean, just glimmers of life are so half-assed that it can only make you wonder, like, oh, I wonder what this would have been like if he had made it and actually cared about it. There's one moment of actual stop motion in the film where that was fun. Yeah. And then the film climaxes with an endless action scene with... Creatures that I'm sure Tim Burton slid a napkin across the the table oh, that he's yeah. like, oh yeah, I drew this like 20 years ago. Just make the monsters look like this. Yeah, it's, as you said, has that dingy CGI palette and, you know, the colors are so washed out mm-hmm. and it's strange because in the real world where this kid lives everything looks flat and sterile and it's like, okay, well eventually he's going to go to the fantasy land where everything is magical. Nope. 
it's dingy and flat and <laughs> sterile in the fantasy land too, except that there are some weirdly striped wallpapers. And it's like, why would I, as a kid watching this, because you want to project yourself onto like, oh, if I could only find people like this, there's never any indication that like, oh, they're having so much fun here. It's like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You're just kind of hanging out, I guess. Yeah. It's just so lazy. And, you know, it makes you realize how much better the Harry Potter movies were by <laughs> contrast in setting up the world uh, mm-hmm. and, and just like lingering in it a bit and getting to know the characters and uh, taking delight in the weirdness of it all. Like Samuel know? Jackson has white eyes and they're like cartoon oh. CG white eyes. They look like, did you ever see that old movie Killers from Space? Where it's like <laughs> yeah. the, the, guy, the aliens have like golf balls or whatever they were on their eyes. Now I should point out that it's not bad in a fun way. Because, like, Tim Burton, throughout his early career, would say stuff like, oh, I wanted the effects in Beetlejuice to not be cutting edge, but to have that kind of tactile. And he uses the word bad a lot, which I'm like, ah, come on, Tim. But it's bad in, like, it should be bad in quotes. Yeah. You know. It's something that he likes. It's what other people perceive to be bad. Mm -hmm. Like, that's how he wanted to approach his adaptation of Mars Attacks, which I watched uh, this week. And I was obsessed with Mars Attacks when it was coming out. I remember it got a huge marketing push. Mm -hmm. And, like, there was a website, you could play games. The idea of, like, Tim Burton doing these freaky-looking aliens and, like, this big cast, like, Michael J. Fox and Jack Nicholson, all this stuff seemed so appealing to me. I remember my friends went and saw it at a birthday party that I wasn't able to go to, and they were just talking about it, and it sounded like the greatest movie ever. And then I must have seen it on TBS or something like that, and I remember hating it. I'm like, what What is this? Yeah. And I hadn't even watched it in forever, and I came back to it this week being like, oh, you know, I'm going to give it another chance. And I just really didn't like it again. Uh, Why not? I thought it was Mm mean-spirited. I thought that it was very dull. I thought that there were so many characters, you didn't get to know any of them. None of them were fun. Not even Jack Nicholson hamming it up in the dual role as the president and... um, The Vegas guy. Was like, I don't like these people. They have nothing appealing about them. And I need that attraction if you're doing an Irwin Allen-style disaster movie that like, I like this person because they're a star and I get that kind of personality from them. And there's nothing of that You're right. Burton hates all the characters in that movie, doesn't he? he? And he takes joy in destroying them. It's a Akin to like the bully coming during school and like smashing a toy you're playing with. He's like, ha ha, that's what real life is like. It's like, well, he is, yeah, he assembled uh, a film of all these archetypes, whether it's like the government mm-hmm. or empty headed TV personalities or I don't know, whatever. And all, all the people who would have been mean to him growing up and mm-hmm. he guns them all down. And I get that like he's recreating the amazing art that were on those cards. Like if you saw uh, those original tops, Mars attacks cards and he recreates a bunch of those scenes like he kills a dog the flaming cows whole bunch of recreations well it's, and, a, it's a cri de coeur <laughs> i mean maybe he was rebelling against the fact that originally the budget of the film based on the script was 230 million dollars <laughs> you know you hear stuff like he wanted to originally make the alien stop motion and then they decided that it was going to be too expensive, so they did it with cutting-edge CGI instead. Mm-hmm. That sounds like Tim Burton going like, I just don't have to worry about this. Just just do it with CG. Because mm-hmm. if he wanted to make it look not real, which I think would have helped the movie, then that stop motion would have made a huge difference. Mm-hmm. 
But nope, he didn't. And he folded like he would continue to fold for the rest of his career. Well, I revisited Beetlejuice this week, his second film. Very enjoyable movie. Mm -hmm. Feels like just a burst of imagination. It feels like, you know, a whole brain's worth of sketchbook ideas just vomited onto the screen. It's so rich and just like weird characters, weird settings, weird visual ideas. I mean, at the end, the scene at the end where Beetlejuice is sitting there in the waiting room and there's the guy next to him with the shrunken head. <laughs> so I mean, that good. shrunken head looks so good. Yeah. Um, um, and it's just a throwaway thing in this movie, you know? Probably not very woke at this point in time. Oh, but... <laughs> yeah, because there's the African tribesman. <laughs> That's right. Um, but even Beetlejuice, a film that is structuralist, essentially, yeah. and jumps around time, it doesn't matter because it's so much fun and there's so much imagination on display. And he just gets the Winona Ryder character and is able to portray her in a way that a whole generation found appealing and spoke to them. He also like takes pleasure. Like he, he finds humor in all of this. Mm -hmm. You know, he doesn't romanticize the Winona Ryder character in quite the same way that like the children of Miss Peregrine's, are like he doesn't take the Winona Ryder character as seriously as he does the later characters. Mm -hmm. Everything's very kind of light and witty. And there's also an amusing disparity between the breadth of his vision and the the not very slick techniques that he's using, you know, claymation or uh, just big tactile props and stuff. Whereas later, it's so well integrated that all that magic is gone. Exactly. It's like it's like when he can do everything perfectly, it ceases to be interesting anymore. Like there's some characters in Miss Peregrine who look like classic Tim Burton characters, but they're just flawless and sterile you and know. boring like boring. you can't reach out and touch them or you don't want to like draw them or like make them yourself and i think that's very important i think that's why he connects with so many people not just because his iconography is so recognizable or that his films are always about the outsider mm -hmm. but there's also that tactile quality to his early films and even though these were hollywood productions it feels homemade mm -hmm. in a way that he's just tossed off post planet of the apes because he's like well now i'm gonna make real movies mm -hmm. and those films Nobody likes them. And, you know, he's obviously a very lucrative brand and people pay for these movies expecting certain things to the point where his imagery has just gotten so ossified. It's like in Miss Peregrine, it has a big climax in a carnival and a circus. It's Again. Like, not not another carnival, not another circus. Holy shit. Like every oh, one of his movies. Has wow. This. The skeletons come to life like Ray Harryhausen. Or and his new movie coming out, Dumbo. It's I, another circus. I'm sorry. I cannot think of a story I would less like to see from him than Dumbo. But you know that like some executive went, hey, you know who could do Dumbo? Tim Burton. He loves that circus and, stuff. And, and, Tim, and Tim Burton said, you know, I, I always identify with the, the outsider. And, <laughs> I, I, you know, Dumbo is kind of like me growing up in suburbia. What about Ed Wood? That's great. It feels like Tim Burton doing something that after Ed Wood, he just never returned to, mm -hmm. which are characters that he genuinely feels passionate about. Mm -hmm. Now, with something like Batman Returns is kind of great because he didn't care about Batman mm -hmm. and he wanted to make a movie about the Penguin and Catwoman. Mm -hmm. So he did. Yeah. He cared about those characters and that's why the movie is the way it is. And Ed Wood, he cares about Ed Wood and the family that it forms around him. As Bill Murray says in the movie, he's like, how do you get all of these people to get baptized just to appear in your crappy monster movie? Yeah. And like, that's what the film is about. Well, you know, with both Ed Wood and Batman Returns, it's like all those characters are so difficult. Mm -hmm. uh, Ed Wood is a difficult guy to be around and, the three, and Batman, the Penguin and Catwoman are as well, but they are so resolutely themselves. 
And I look at something like Ed Wood, and it's obvious that he approached it with a distinct visual idea. It's not just like, oh, we're shooting in black and white so it could look like an Ed Wood movie. It's the way that it's lit, the way that he moves his camera. It feels like not only Orson Wellesian with Citizen Kane, but it also feels like Ed Wood. Like, the light's a little too close, the shadows are too big, and, like, as a kid, you wouldn't notice that, but I think that you subconsciously just absorb it while watching it. And also, you know, there's one of the first shots of the movie is the camera panning over Hollywood. Mm-hmm. That fake Hollywood so good it's so good but it's also like not real Hollywood it's like you know there's the brown derby and there's this all these landmarks that are too close together and it's like the movie is a child's idea of Hollywood or or, or a movie version of Hollywood and if he had done that now with CG you'd just be like who cares Yeah. but like that shot where it goes across the gravestones as well like a treehouse of of horror special Mm -hmm. with everybody's names on them and then Ed Wood he just doesn't focus on Ed Wood he also focuses on Bella Lugosi as characters that are difficult but because of that difficulty their humanity comes right out and like martin landau as bella lugosi so good very good and it's interesting too because he chose an actual true story to do Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a bit of a tension between his outlandish approach to the material and the fact that it was an actual true story uh, which i guess he did again with big eyes yeah Uh, i mean big eyes i watched it this week because i skipped it when it came out come back come Uh, back no yeah. It does feel so cold and digital and he can't quite seem to figure out like what story he wants to tell as well. And where's the drama in this? It almost feels too muted. Well, yeah, it's like Miss Peregrine. It has this kind of half-baked visual style where it's sort of, has kind of a pastel look sort of. Mm. And it, know, he turned the saturation up in color correction to make it all kind of bright. Yeah, but you know, what if he actually uh, made it look like a Margaret Keene painting? That would have been amazing. You know? And there's scenes where like she sees her Self, like reflected with big eyes and it's just like yeah. all right it's just half-assed yeah <laughs> it but it's not really... like edward the way edward totally like takes on that edward aesthetic mm-hmm. I, I mean it's so difficult to articulate what was so magic about those movies such so as going back to the same topics again mm-hmm. is that like tactileness an actual humanity in these difficult characters mm-hmm. kind of shambling structures like ed wood has a biopic structure and it actually works yeah. in a way that biopics usually don't. And it's because there's that relationship between Ed Wood and Bela Lugosi that everything else kind of centers around. Mm-hmm. And without that in a lot of his movies, it's just like a generic cipher, an Alice, if you will, in the middle and just these wacky characters dancing in front of a blue screen <laughs> like or green screen. Ugh, man, it makes me sad. But look, uh, the numbers don't lie. America loves Tim Burton. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is Tim Burton. Uh, it made over $200 million. And have you made over $200 million? I have not. So. I, I mean, every time that you get a little bit of hope where he's like, oh, he's remaking Dark Shadows. You're like, oh, man, maybe he'll get back to that old classic Tim Burton magic. Nope. As a uh, friend of the podcast, Massey Kumar said, it feels like a film made up of outtakes of another film. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. So do you think maybe there's hope for Tim Burton at no, some point? No, I don't think so. I think it's been such a, it's been a 20 year losing streak. You know, forget it. Bury him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, put put a nail in the coffin. But you know, we'll always have Beetlejuice. You didn't like the stop motion Frankenweenie uh, movie? It was fine. Okay, this thing, a lot of the later ones, they aren't bad enough to really rouse your passion, right? It's weird because like Frankenweenie, one of the big things that really bothered me about it is what bothered me about the original short is that the message of the film is that this kid's dog dies he brings it back to life it's persecuted and then it dies again and then he brings it back to life again (laughs) it's like what kind of message is that for anybody watching 
it's such a good opportunity to make a film about like loss and sadness in a way that he kind of did in Edward Scissorhands. Mm. But Dumbo is coming out and, you know, you never know. Perhaps it'll recapture. <laughs> Are you going to go see Dumbo? I don't think so. Like if it has rave reviews. Well, if it has rave reviews, sure. But, you know, there are only so many times Lucy can hold the football. <laughs> <laughs> Before, like, um, Lucy, Johnny Depp, and Helena Bohm Carter all pull it away. Yeah. Well, we didn't mention that uh, Sweeney Todd has two people who can't even sing in it. Yeah. I mean, I saw that in theaters, and I'm like, all right, not for me. <laughs> so uh, we have an announcement to make this week. Oh, good news? After uh, the sad Tim Burton episode? Yes, there is good news. Uh, because, yeah, we may have made fun of somebody else's work, but we're going to put work of our own out into the world, too. Mm. Uh, the Important Cinema Club podcast is now a book. A book? An actual book with a spine and pages and everything. What? It's called The Important Cinema Club Journal. Mm-hmm. It's something that Justin and myself have been working on for a while. It's our gift to you, the fans, except that you have it's, to pay it's for not it. a gift. <laughs> you literally have to buy it. Um, we talk about so many things in this book. What, yeah. is, like, what are some of the... Uh, uh, so much. We talk about the Hong Kong Girls with Guns uh, genre. You interview the sons of Gary Graver. That's absolutely true. Uh, There are articles about filmmakers like uh, you know, many people that we've talked about on the podcast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Mabel Normand, Charlie Chaplin, Joe Dante, Albert Pune. Yeah, Joe D'Amato. Many, many things. We review DVD releases, mm-hmm. an analysis of Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. <laughs> That's right. Everything you could possibly want in a book, I would say. I look at this book and I'm like, well, it has everything that I would want in it because only me and Will wrote it. There's like no other contributors. It's like, imagine you uh, took a screw and, and you screwed into our brain and you all the fluid came out that is this book the important cinema club journal and you may be wondering well how can i get this book well good news it's on amazon right Right now now. go to amazon we are announcing this right now amazon.com and amazon.ca and also uk amazon fuck german amazon (laughs) really it's everywhere they've all got it wow yeah so there's no excuse that like these books shouldn't be flying off the shelves and making that new york times bestseller list (laughs) (laughs) we can do it we can do it okay whoever gets us on the new york times bestseller list gets to choose a Patreon topic. Like, uh, what if we were, like, number one in film, like, books? You know, how on a... I, no, that, that's not attainable. It'll probably be, like, some celebrity's autobiography. If you look, though, it's very, like, oh, it's that book? Like, you, we can get there. Let's crack the top ten. <laughs> the top ten of film we books? Can, we can do it. <laughs> okay. Oh, man, there's so much good stuff in it. There's a, the official history of the Laser Blast Film Society. There's a beginner's guide to Bruceploitation. Mm-hmm. Everything, you again, you could possibly want from a book. It's 107 pages. Throw out your copy of The Great Gatsby. <laughs> There's a new book in town, and it's thick and it's dense. You know that shelf of film books that you have? Just toss it in the fire. Yes. Just, you just need one copy of this. And who knows? We may make a sequel. Yeah, we, there's a number one on the cover right there. Yeah. When originally it was going to be like 32 pages before it ballooned on seven. <laughs> yeah, it's absurd. This, this is our Fitzcarraldo pulling a boat over a mountain. <laughs> and if we sell copies... Uh, we'll do it again. Yeah. And uh, we may have a launch soon. Yeah. If you live in Toronto, we'll definitely be having a launch event at some point. We'll announce it on the podcast. To be announced. So get on Amazon and buy that book. Do we have any letters? I'm still cooling down from that. Uh, announcement. I've been waiting you, for so you're long. You're building it up. <laughs> I've been waiting for so long to make that announcement on this podcast. Oh, man. There's the uh, uncut David Dakota interview in it that oh, you did shit. with him. Oh, uh, shit. There's, like, good stuff in this. Folks, if you don't buy this, <laughs> I don't know what you want. Yeah. Like, why are you listening to this podcast? Did you recognize Tim Burton's name? Is that why you're listening? Like, th- this is, frankly, the ultimate book. <laughs> <laughs> 
we have well, can there be a volume two what would we have left to write about if you like this podcast <laughs> i i cannot fathom you disliking this book wait there's a you wrote a whole article on curly joe <laughs> i did write a, i wrote a whole article on curly joe dorito the three stooges the lost stooge brother <laughs> so our first letter is from uh, Moran, and it goes, Hi, Justin and Will. After listening to your bonus episode about Captain Kana, oh no, he spoiled what our last week's uh, Patreon <laughs> episode was about, and Justin touching a bit on Tavernier in general, I was wondering uh, your general opinion, if you have any, on post-New Wave 70s and 80s French films and directors. Bertrand Blier, Claude Sautet, Maurice Piat, Alain Corneau, Patrice Chéreau. Are there ones that stick out in your opinion? Thanks. I recognize only two names in that. How about you? I'm sorry, I don't have a strong opinion. Yeah, like Claude Lelouch and Maurice uh, Piat are the two names that I recognize. Yeah. I think I've seen some of their movies. Yeah, it's it, difficult, you know, when you're talking about a country that, like, has such a vast cinematic output to mm-hmm. be able to, like, you know, like the French New Wave, you know, it's not like those were the only movies that were coming out of France at that time. It was just one one facet of French cinema, and yet it comes, in your, in your mind, it comes to dominate the whole decade. I was concerned considering why like the French New Wave did make as big of an impact as it did and I th- I think it's probably because you know if something became popular that's what everybody talked about this new and fresh thing now if something kind of becomes popular now in one small group of people it will then fade away because new stuff is going to come right away. Mm-hmm. And like Godard, when he made movies, he made like two, three films a year. And like, he just kept doing it in that small pocket and all these filmmakers did their stuff. And then it moved on to something else. Mm-hmm. Like Truffaut continued to make movies and nobody really talks about them in the same way. Number one, because they're not as kind of energetic as his earlier stuff. Mm-hmm. And number two, there was just so much other stuff to talk about. Like all the films that played in film festivals and win awards, it only goes so far. Mm -hmm. And you have to be in that special moment that I don't know if it exists anymore. Mm -hmm. Like something like Sex, Lies, and Videotape, I don't think it could happen again in the way that it did when it came out and it was such a big deal for Steven Soderbergh. Mm -hmm. Like think about the big films that are hits at Sundance that no one that I know who just follows normal culture would ever hear about. Yeah, Yeah. So like the world has changed and that's a bit of a bummer because what will history look like but you know we'll be there and we'll figure it out yeah sundance fucking sucks <laughs> indies name they a, cost five billion dollars they're not good, indies name a good movie that has ever come out of sundance <laughs> d- 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 you can't you see you know n- none not oh what reservoir Cl- dogs clerks clerks, clerks. Yeah, when Clerks is in your first, like, four movies that you pick, that's the sign of a shitty festival. <laughs> Wait, let me think about Sundance. So, let's, Sundance since the year 2000. Yeah. Who is it for? Like, that's I what I don't understand. And, you know, Sundance... I'm sorry, this is way far from that French Wait, well, what if what if one day uh, my film makes it into Sundance, and then you're just like, wait, wait, we found this old podcast about Tim Burton. Your film will never make it into Sundance. <laughs> it won't. <laughs> Let's be honest. What was the last Canadian film that played Sundance? Oh, I don't know. That you can think of, like, off the top of your head. I can't... I no, can't I can't think, think of any Maybe either. Slam Dance. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but not Sundance. Yeah. It's a... Um, <laughs> A party for cool people that no one else is invited to. And frankly, they should stop showing movies because, you know, every year, big acquisitions come out of Sundance. Oh, we sold this for 10 million, we sold this for 15 million. I don't believe those deals were made at Sundance. Sundance is just a publicity gimmick. Didn't you hear that the new Zac Efron film uh, sold for $9 million at Sundance? Oh, yeah. Like that deal wasn't being worked out before the festival started. It, no, it's just it's just a, a, a launching pad. Mm-hmm. It's, don't show movies anymore. Just have it be a place for social media influencers 
answers to party. That's what I think Sundance <laughs> so is. So I could never hear about it ever again. Yeah. Like that would be completely yeah. disconnected from my life completely. And they'll be happy. They'll yeah. be having a good time. Man, did, did Sundance hurt you, Will? Like I, you exploded in anger when talking about it. I'm, I just don't like hearing about it. Oh, wow. That's okay. Stupid. No, it didn't hurt me. I have no connection to Sundance. <laughs> but just people talking about it makes you like, oh. Of all the festivals, it's the one I'm least interested in. What about the Sundance Labs? Did you ever hear about that? Oh, Where yeah. they get directors. Where they make, make filmmakers and beakers and stuff. Yeah. And they... <laughs> People that have, um, you know, a little bit more money and can go down and do all this stuff. Yeah. Sundance has been coasting along on Tarantino for too long now, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you look back, like, it was started by Robert Redford as an alternative to, like, mainstream Hollywood cinema. And now it's it's not that. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I find frustrating about it. Uh, don't give me a rant about film festivals. Oh, boy. Oh, man. <laughs> so frustrating. Can you imagine going to a film festival and you're like, man, all the movies I saw were actually interesting. No, that's never going to happen. No. And it's not even a matter of taste. It's a matter of politics. I don't know if you hear this, but there's a dog barking. In yeah, the she doesn't like Sundance either. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's our dog. You know how Siskel and Ebert used to have a dog who would jump into the balcony? Who <laughs> Did they? Yeah, yeah. For the dog of the week. All right. So now that we've decompressed from that, our next letter is from Theodore Schultz. And he goes, hey, Justin and Will, I'm running to you from Pennsylvania after just listening to the entire Patreon back catalog. Wow. Dedication. I've been listening since the beginning and I'm a huge fan of the podcast. I wanted to talk about your Patreon episode on the other side of the wind. On the episode, you guys discussed how the documentary on Orson Welles is getting only two star reviews on Letterboxd. And I just can't fathom this. When the other side of the wind came out on Netflix, I'm ashamed to say I had never seen any Orson Welles films. Wow. And I wanted to correct this. Nothing wrong with not seeing movies. Yeah. After watching Touch of Evil and Citizen Kane, I watched The Other Side of the Wind and They'll Love Me When I'm Dead. I was so moved by the final clip of Wells when they captured him laughing and how they told the story of when John Huston watched that clip and was brought to tears over it. That was in the Henry Jaglom film, Someone to Love. <laughs> Such a sad ending to this man's legacy. I wanted to thank both of you guys for bringing me in touch with films I would have put off for a long time or just looked over completely. Oh, wow. If you guys have any suggestions of what I should watch next by Wells, I would be much appreciative. Thanks again and keep up the great work, Ted Schultz. Well, thank you very much for that nice letter, Ted. As far as Orson Welles go, I think that if you watch those two films, a good thing to jump right into would be the book, uh, This is Orson Welles, uh, the interview book he did with Peter Bogdanovich, because it's really fun and you get Wells is kind of like prickly personality throughout it. And he does talk about his films after that effort fake. Yeah. Especially if you like the other side of the wind, because that's him evolving that style as he goes along. There's not really that many Orphan Wells feature films, but I, I mean, I think all the Orson Wells feature films are sort of like essential to some degree, mm-hmm. like Magnificent Ambersons, uh, you know, Chimes at Midnight, uh, even something that he did only to prove that he could make movies like, uh, Macbeth and The Stranger mm-hmm. are interesting in and of themselves. Lady from Shanghai is certainly... Oh, yeah. Produced uh, by uh, William Castle. And I mean, of course, uh, Chimes at Midnight is the other, you know, acknowledged masterpiece. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think Fake is the logical next step. Yeah. And this week on the Patreon... We're talking about our 10 favorite films of all time. Goddamn. Because it's our 101st episode... We missed the 100 mark, but, you know, 101st is really more special because it's one past that. Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to know the deep, insightful truths of me and Will, you got to listen to this episode. You got to pay us $5 a month to get on patreon.com slash the important cinema club 
Do you think people will be shocked by any of our choices? No, I think it'll probably be the same things we've talked about. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine we talked about a movie we've never mentioned ever <laughs> while doing this podcast? I did, There are definitely times during this podcast <laughs> where I kind of feel like I've talked about everything I like. <laughs> But now we can talk about what what it really means to us mm. on this Patreon episode. What are we doing next week? Next week, we're talking about Joseph H. Lewis, a director most famous for uh, Gun Crazy and the big combo to like really great noir films. But he also worked a lot on Poverty Row. He made Bowery Boys films. He made a Bela Lugosi movie. Yeah, that's right. He did musicals. He worked in television a lot when they would make westerns. Mm -hmm. And he's a director that I think that people talk about those two films that kind of push everything else away. Mm -hmm. But I've read like an interview book with him and he had a fascinating career trying to make gold out of shit. Mm -hmm. Like when you're working for companies like Monogram and you're like, how can you make something interesting out of that? And he's pretty much known as a guy who could find ways to do it. So I'm very excited to dig into the filmography. I'm shocked that you haven't like seen more of his movies. Uh, yeah, I've only seen a few of them, so mm-hmm. I'm happy to get in there. I love the anecdote that he says that when he started directing westerns and had to turn them out, he was known as Wagon Wheel Joe because to make shots interesting, he had a little box of wagon wheels he would carry with him, and so he would put it in front of the camera to give mm-hmm. it like depth in the frame. <laughs> and like he actually got fired because when his contract came back up again, they're like, "We don't want that guy who puts wagon wheels all the time in his movies." Mm-hmm. So, until next week... My name's Justin Clue, And I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. I was about to say the balcony is closed, but I can't. I have to stop saying that. You gotta stop saying that, yeah. So we have a special guest with us right now. Emily Milling is here to talk about Tim Burton's Beetlejuice. Yes, I am. And when I said we were going to do a Tim Burton episode, you are like, I gotta talk about Beetlejuice. Why is it you so passionate about it? So Beetlejuice is a movie that, I mean, among other... Among other Tim Burton movies, I got really excited about when I was a kid. It came on uh, YTV around Halloween, and and that was such a special moment. And I would record it off the TV and learn the dance moves and learn everything about it. And finally, DVDs came out. So I got a DVD. <laughs> yep. Um, I have several versions of it because I broke them for watching them so many times in a row. <sighs> they just I, melted in, in your DVD player. Exactly. I, I mean, for Halloween one year, I also convinced my stepdad that we should build the facade outside of Beetlejuice's sexy lady club for our <laughs> home. That was also a really Wait, did that thing. happen? Yeah. I've never seen any photos of that. Well, because it was in a time where digital photos weren't really a thing yet. <laughs> Not really photos were at all. Old cowboy times and stuff like exactly. that. Exactly. <laughs> what was it about Beetlejuice that you loved so much among all the Tim Burton movies? Well, I love them all. I was a huge fan of Tim Burton when you I was You love them all? When I was a kid. Okay, so up to like Planet of the Apes. Before Planet of the Apes. I love Tim Burton. My email address was Timothy underscore William underscore Burton. It was? At Hotmail.com. Jesus. So, you swooped in there. So, so were you kind of a quirky outsider? Oh, fuck yeah. yeah. You've met me. Yeah, a, little, <laughs> yeah. a, little, a little on the weird side. Yeah, you're wearing the goth makeup right now in the black, yeah. and you're yeah, like, nobody understands me. I'm super me. gothy. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd go to Shop school. Shop at uh, Hot Topic. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. We, would, we, we didn't have Hot Topic, but we would, like, look online when, when online became a thing. And that's when I found more Tim Burton things, when you could start downloading stuff, like the Vincent short film and other such things I'm sure you'll talk about later. But right now... I need to talk about how much I love Beetlejuice, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, right. Beetlejuice. That's why I forced but, but, yeah. myself on your show. Why that movie specifically? Uh, I don't know. It's got so much energy. It's got uh-huh. Catherine O'Hara. It's got 
Dick Cavett. <laughs> That's right. You're a big Dick Cavett fan? No. It's got Robert Goulet. Yes. It is a very good formulation of all the stuff that Tim Burton said that he loved. So it's got like stop motion animation. It's got like other worlds. It allows him to go full expressionist with his set design uh-huh. in a story that actually has like a little bit of heart and Michael Keaton just yes. chewing up Hamming the scenery. Up. Oh, he's so great. It's his best defining role of all time. <laughs> it's my favorite. Oh, you're right. I shouldn't have talked about how much I love it yesterday because I've burned through all my great material for right now. But you love the Beetlejuice cartoon show as well. I and do you did. think that Tim Burton aesthetic continues in that? And what would you define yeah. like the aesthetic to be in your opinion? Well, I, I think it's just this world building that he's really, really good at in this film in particular. I mean, like he is generally good at world building, but I feel like it works in Beetlejuice so well because when I was a kid, I loved ghosts, but I was too afraid to watch actual ghost movies. Mm. So this was this was a way in. This was a gateway into ghost movies that were hilarious and super weird and scary. And if I had dreams about them, I could be like, oh, I went to Saturn. I saw the sandworms. And it was very fun for me as an imagination happy <sighs> young person before Harry Potter and everything before before all of these universes started just being things, there was Tim Burton's universes. Mm-hmm. And I think that made life a lot more exciting for me. So when I was a kid, I went to Planet Hollywood and they had, I didn't understand what it was at the time. This was like just before they started putting Beetlejuice on TV. They had the hand that comes out of the shrimp bowl that pulls their faces right. in during the uh, the Calypso dance. That's ridiculous. <sighs> that is like... <laughs> I spent many hours in front of the TV learning that dance. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And and I've watched the, the opening title sequence so many times that I've... <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've got it completely memorized in my head. It's just unfortunately I can't make the sound of all of those orchestral instruments. Did you like the cartoon show? Yes, I love the cartoon show. Again, that weird and crazy world. They totally got rid of um, Barbara and Adam, which I didn't love, but it did make sense for a kid's show because there's so many layers in this movie. It's so deep. It's so layered. Did you identify with the Winona Ryder character? I feel like I identified with the Catherine O'Hara character. Huh, interesting. And Beetlejuice. You love grabbing your crotch. Because you're a bit of a horn dog. (laughs) Yeah, I was was very, like, clowny kind of kid. So characters like that were super fun. Like, Will, you love Ace Ventura and you Mm. love all of the Jim Carrey movies from when we were kids. We've talked about this at great length many times. uh, Beetlejuice is like the dark Ace Ventura. <laughs> yeah. Ace Ventura can be pretty dark, though. 